We've been in uh, a series called James Brutal Honesty from the Brother of Jesus, really uh, getting some, some stern words from uh, the oldest younger brother of Jesus, and he touches on some really, really practical issues that are really important to us with brutal honesty. And you know, we need brutal honesty sometimes, don't we? Some of you guys have friends who, who they can get up in your face a little bit, and that's a good thing. They can really kind of put you in your place, and let's see James as that, uh, a friend who can really... Um, kind of get up in our face a little bit with brutal honesty. And so James chapter 2, if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. James chapter 2, we'll have the scripture on the screen for you. Um, but we also have uh, Bibles here in the, the pews. If you need one of those, uh, be sure to grab one of those. You guys can pass them down. And if you don't have a Bible at home that you can dust off if you didn't bring one with you, uh, grab that Bible that we have provided, and it's our gift for you. We'd be really glad for you to have that. And in those Bibles, it's page 869. But James chapter 2 will begin the first 13 verses uh, together this morning. Uh, you, you may remember in our intro uh, week to the book of James uh, two weeks ago that we saw that James, he, he speaks less about Jesus than any other writer of the New Testament. However, he sounds more like Jesus than any other writer of the New Testament. We see that he's blunt like Jesus. I mean, just straight to the point like Jesus. We see that he uses strong illustrations like Jesus did. We see that he asks a lot of rhetorical questions like Jesus did. We saw that he uh, calls people to put their faith into action much like Jesus did. And he's very similar to Jesus, largely in part because he was the half-brother of Jesus. And he's really to the point, he's really frank. Understand it's because he is fighting for real, authentic Christianity. Not this kind of fuzzy, Christian, cultural middle that we have here in America. He's fighting for real faith, real authentic Christianity. And though he rejected the notion that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of the world when Jesus was walking the earth, after Jesus died on the cross, resurrected, and then appeared to James, his half-brothers, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, after that, he believed on Jesus, placed faith in Jesus, and rises up as a, a leader of the church of Jerusalem. And so as the brother of Jesus, a leader of the church of Jerusalem, he is a man who is concerned with the bride of Christ, honoring Christ, and concerned with holiness. And today we see him once again fighting for holiness. And today he's fighting for this particular area of holiness. He's fighting for equality. He's fighting for impartiality. That's what we're looking at together this morning. So let's read verse 1 of James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 1, it lays out for us a gospel foundation for where we're going uh, this morning. He says this. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's a unique phrase applied to Jesus, the Lord of glory. I love this. That he is glorious, he is great, he is holy, and we are to honor him. That we are to be holy as he is holy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he lays this gospel foundation in this verse. And for me this week, um, really preparing for uh, where we're going together this morning has really been encouraging for me. I really have enjoyed preparing because as I've been preparing for where we're going this morning, my mind has just really been full of just all kinds of uh, thoughts and, and re- recollections of just how you really have been living out the passage that we're, we're looking at, how you really have been living out a, a heart for equality, a heart 
for, for impartiality, a heart for just tearing down the divisions that we see in our neighborhood, in our city, in New England, and, and beyond. And so I'm really, really encouraged at the topic that we're looking at this morning. However, we always have room to grow, and so I'm going to preach it. Is that cool? Can I preach it this morning? All right, I'm, I'm just going to kind of preach it and bring it this morning because this is really, really important. And let me start by doing this. Let me start by bringing your mind to a painful place. Are you ready? I'm going to bring, bring you to a really painful place for many of us. Middle school. Remember this? It was particularly painful for me because I was the kid with the oversized paisley polo shirt, hair parted in the middle, and what I call Colin Powell glasses. It was just awful. And if you know Colin Powell, that's, that, I had those glasses. And... Uh, it was painful for me in many ways of every life stage that, that I've gone through. I, I could probably say, I'd like to go back and check that season out again and just kind of relive a little bit of it. It'd be fun. Not middle school. Not at all. And uh, maybe you can relate with me a little bit. You might remember that in middle school, one thing that starts to kind of shape up in middle school and into high school is the, the, the middle school, high school caste system. You know what I'm talking about? There's a little bit of a cast system. There's a lot of movies made uh, about that, kind of joking that. You remember uh, where you fit into the cast system? Kind of think back to where you were. Maybe you were the athlete. Maybe you were the, the brainiac, the bookworm. Maybe you were the video gamer. Maybe you were uh, the bando, the band nerd. Maybe you were, uh, you know, maybe you related to a specific ethnic group, and that was kind of your, your identity. Maybe for you it was a type of music, and that was kind of who you were in middle school and high school. You were the emo, you were the screamo, you were the hip-hop, you were the goth, or whatever it was, country, right? I don't know. What, what, what were you? You kind of can go there. And there was all these kind of classes divided up in, in, in middle school. And, and all the while, it seemed as though each of these groups kind of looked down their nose at the other groups, didn't they? I know the jocks kind of get the reputation for this. But the truth is, all the groups kind of do this, don't they, in, in middle school and in high school? The jocks kind of have the reputation for, for looking down at the band nerds, right, as these uncoordinated, you know, nerdy instrumentalists, right? And then the, really on the flip side, the, the bandos kind of had the reputation or, or would really look down on the jocks as, you know, the mindless barbarians who they're just pushing a football down the field and, you know, wrestling with each other all the way down. And, I mean, I want to see one of those guys really play a concerto, right? I mean, a bunch of losers, right? And so they're like, get off the football field. The field is all about marching band, not football. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? And so you kind of see how each of the groups start to kind of look down their, their nose at, at each other. And then we grow up, and this never happens again, does it? We never look down our nose at anybody else again, wrong, right? It starts to take different forms as we get into college and as we uh, move into uh, adulthood. Uh, you know, a few years ago, it, it, became, uh, it became in style to not be in style. You know what I'm talking about? It became cool to not look cool. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to look like the, the commercial. You don't want to look like the advertisement. And uh, it just became cool to, to not be cool. And Shame on you if you listen to mainstream music. You need to go on the web and find like really crazy, unique, obscure music. And if you listen to pop music, you're just, you're just ridiculous, right? You, you wanted to be as unlike everybody else as you possibly could be. And then what kind of rose up from that? The brand we call hipster, right? And so now we have a bunch of 20-somethings dressing like 80-somethings. And that's cool somehow, you know? And they look like a bunch of people sitting around in a nursing home, but they're 20, right? And it's weird. And so it just kind of becomes this brand all its own, right? And kind of this class all its own. Or, you know, there's, I mean, it just goes on through life, you know? 
Whole Foods. You ever been to Whole Foods? Everybody looks the same, don't they? They all kind of look the same in Whole Foods. It's kind of this, this clan, and it's easy. I'm just mocking this, and I'm, these are sweeping, you know, broad generalizations, but it, it's easy, you know, to, to be a Whole Fooder, and, and if that works, and, and look at other people and say, they don't care about the earth. They don't care about their body. They hate the earth. They hate their body. How could they put the poison of Burger King into their bodies, right? All the while, the people at Burger King are looking at the people at Whole Food and thinking, well, if I was as loaded as you, maybe I would. I'm not a stuck-up snob. You know, it's just like this. We all kind of look down our nose at, at each other, and there's just divisions, right? There's divisions all over the place. We just kind of drift in that direction. If we look at a, a geographic map of the neighborhoods of Boston, Boston is very tribal, right? And there's a lot of pride in what neighborhood uh, you're, you're from. And even the neighborhoods who pride themselves in diversity and pride themselves in, in, in tolerance, there's really stark dividing lines in those neighborhoods. Even like the neighborhood we, we sit in today, we're, we're on the train tracks right here. You ever heard the phrase, the other side of the tracks? That, that kind, of, kind of plays out in, in, in our neighborhoods. If, if you were to trace this train line from here all the way to the orange line, all the way down to, to downtown crossing, that idiom kind of proves true, doesn't it? The other side of the tracks, and each side kind of looking over at the other. Real start dividing lines. If you hop on the orange line and you were to get off at, at say, Green Street, some people go left, but other people go right. At Green Street, some people are going to go left to J.P. Center Street, which is very different from going right to J.P. Washington Street. If you were to get off at, say, Roxbury Crossing, some people are going to go left and go to the South End. And other people are going to go right and go to Eggleston Square, Roxbury. And so you can kind of see there's a a dividing line. Again, some generalization there, but there's a bit of a dividing line, and there's real divisions, even in the neighborhoods that say we are ethnically, culturally, socially economically diverse. Because you can go online and you can pull up the demographics, you can read them and say, wow, that's impressive, right? But then you can actually drive through the neighborhoods and say, yeah, it's really diverse on the chart, but they're over here and they're over here and there's division, right? There's division. Now, enough sociology. Here's my point. My point is that people, when left unchecked and unchallenged, tend to to drift into divided groups. We call this the homogenous principle, right? That people kind of gravitate towards their socioeconomic, ethnic, generational interest kind of groups. That's kind of how people tend to drift. And there's divisions all over the place. It's part of the, the, just the fallen state of humanity. But then... There's the church. There's the church. And I really believe from the scriptures that we're to be different. And we're to pursue that hard. There's the church. And the church, God's people who have trusted in the Lord Jesus alone for salvation. There's the church, God's people, who believe that all of humanity have been made in the imago Dei, the image of God, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. And so we should have this high value on all of humanity, no matter what. All of humanity. God's people who 
are really concerned with equality because of the gospel, because of the good news of Jesus, that God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that he lived perfectly the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve, not him. And so we are all unified, not based on what we've accomplished, because that just creates division. I've done this, and you've done that, and you're this, and I'm that. But we're unified, not in what we've accomplished, but we're unified in what he has accomplished. And so our unity is outside of ourselves. And so these, these dividing walls can start to come down a little bit. Some of you, maybe you've seen our, our ad on, on the T or on the bus or on the platforms, and it reads, we are different people from different places in different seasons. That's who we are, praise God. And that's who we're increasingly pursuing to be, that we are unified not by affinity. We're unified not by what nation we were born in, or what state we were born in, or what neighborhood of Boston we're from. We're unified in Jesus, that we are, are unified not in seasons of life. And so we have the church with the people with white hair and the church with the people with uh, colorful hair, I don't know, people with yo- younger people, but we're, we're, we're unified in Jesus and what he has done. I, I heard this argument uh, this summer, I was having a friendly discourse with a lady uh, who's a leader of a local civic organization, and it really was just a friendly discourse, and it was really good. She was talking to me about how unique our church is and what we're doing in the neighborhood. And then through the conversation, she kind of felt open just to share with me uh, her, her frustration with uh, the church at, at large. And, and she said, you know, I'm really frustrated at religion. It's just divisive. And she was saying, you know, be encouraged. She was saying that, that Charles River Church, I, I find to be a little bit different. She said, but religion is divisive. And I said, I agree. Religion is divisive. And she was kind of like taken back. You, wait, wait, you agree with me? You're a pastor. You're supposed to tell me why it's not d- divisive. I, sa- I said, no, religion is divisive. I said, but we're not religious. And, and, and I pray that that's what makes us different. Because religion says, if I do this, and I do this, and I do this, then I can please God and I can earn God's favor. And that's not us. Because what we're all about is the fact that God has done what I can't do. And you can kind of see how religion leads to people looking down their nose at people. Because look what I've done. Look what I've earned. God is happy with me. I've pleased him. And we said, that's not us. We're not religious. And so there's obvious pride and arrogance that comes out of that because you think you did something that they didn't. We said, no, God has done something that you didn't, and God has done something that I didn't. And I've just said yes to him. I've, I've opened up a gift. I haven't earned a reward. See the big difference there, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a big difference there. And so I told my friend as I'm having this conversation, I said, you know, it's true of, of just about every religion out there that if you do this, you can please God. And I said, but Christianity is entirely different. Christianity is about this word called Grace. And grace really sets us apart from every other religion out there. That God came to give us something that we didn't deserve. That he descended to us, not we ascended to him. And so look what I've done. Look at this mountain that I've climbed. And I'm looking down upon all of you minions as though you're just inferior because I have accomplished this. No, he came to us and he accomplished it. And so there's no room in the church to look down our nose at anyone because we're just like everybody else and that we are sinful, and that we are imperfect. And so do you see how the Christian faith brings about unity? 
You see how the Christian faith elevates our equality in our humanity, our equality in our sinfulness, our equality because God offers grace to all that he died for all? You see how Christianity leaves no room whatsoever for for partiality? And so my friend, she responded with, wow, never heard it like that before. She was just taken back. And she said, you got to meet my husband. He's really spiritual. He'd love to talk to you about this. So cool. So cool. And so here in James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus. Show no partiality. How could a Christian hold to this faith, hold to this gospel, this good news of Jesus, and yet be partial? How's that even possible? It's complete and utter hypocrisy. He says, can't do it. It's contrary to the gospel. Okay, so we've laid a gospel foundation with verse 1. Let's start to move a little faster. Now, verses 2 through 4, he gives us a a, a case study. So let's read verses 2 through 4. Here's what he says. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Stop there for a second. Here's what James does. He, he gives us case study. He gives us a picture of a rich man and uh, a poor man. And he says they both show up to church, rich and poor. And he says the rich man has on fine clothing, and he's got a little bit of bling on his finger, right? He's got a, he's got a gold ring. And, 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 and now, in this culture, you could actually go out and you could, you could rent a ring so that you would show up and look like you were maybe the next step up. You were at another class. You were at another place in life. And you could rent a gold ring for the party, and you could show up to the party, or church maybe even, and, and look a little more dignified than you actually were. It's kind of like today, if you were to have a, some kind of event, you could go out and you could rent a sports car. Right? You could rent a limo for prom or whatever it is you do. It's kind of similar to look a little more snazzy than we actually are to impress people and for maybe even people to think, wow, look at him. Wow, look at that dress. That's amazing. Wow. You, can, you know, there's certain events that you can buy a dress that you would never really be able to afford, but you, you save up for this one particular event. And so the rich man shows up wearing fancy clothes and a gold ring. And then a poor man shows up and it says, no, no jewelry, just wearing shabby clothing. Shabby clothing. Maybe he looks like a hipster. I don't know. <laughs> he shows up. And now in, in their culture, there's divisions. I mean, very real divisions. There's a bit of a caste system and the rich very seldom would mix with the poor. And yet one of the exceptions was the church. that The rich and the poor could show up together. And so again, Christ brings unity and equality. And so the good news in this little case study is that both the rich and the poor are, are, are showing up together. That's, that's good news. And as a church, we pray for this. We want that, right? We long for that, that we would have wealthy and poorer people. We'd have middle class and lower middle class and upper middle class and everybody kind of in between. We pray for that. 
We pray for diversity economically. We pray for diversity socially. We pray for diversity generationally, even though people fight hard against that. We pray for ethnic uh, diversity. And the good news is they, they kind of had that, right? Rich and poor together. But the bad news is, is that the Christians in this illustration, whether he's speaking to a specific instance or just kind of giving a hypothetical here, that the Christians in this illustration respond with partiality towards the wealthy man. And that's the, that's the bad news because partiality does not reflect the gospel. It does not reflect faith in the Lord Jesus that they hold to, as he says in verse 1. And their partiality looked like this. They had the rich man sit in a good place, whatever that looked like in their assembly. For us, I, really, I don't even know what the good place is here. Uh, is it the front row? I don't know. This isn't a concert where you're really itching to get on the front row. In fact, these are like the brave few here because they're in the spit zone, right? And the scream zone. And, and so I don't know if that's a good place or not, but they had the rich man sit in a good place and they had the poor man stand over there, over here, or sit at my feet like a servant would in that day. He would sit at feet, wash feet, and care for other people. That's dirty, isn't it? Wow. I mean, that's stark division. Now, here's where we can easily start to check out. I pray you haven't already done this. I'm going to try to rein you back in here. We can start to check out and say, no, that's not me. (laughs) you kidding me? I don't don't cause people to sit at my feet. I don't put people on the back of the bus. I I don't do that. We don't roll like that. We're in America. So it's easy, to kind of, it's easy to kind of check out. But I want to show you that we, we all kind of do this in different ways. And even recently, I think we've all done this. Maybe, probably even today as you walk through the doors of, of this church. And so what I want to do is I want to, for the next few minutes together, I want to give us four truths about partiality from James. James gives us four truths about partiality. And here's, here's the first truth about partiality. Partiality uses others. You know, partiality uses people. We speak here often about how we want to be a church of contributors and not a church of consumers, that we don't come just to consume and to get and to receive, but we actually come to say, how can I give? How can I serve? How can I bless somebody today? And partiality is a way that, that we become consumers and users of, of people relationally. So uh, look at verse 3 again, and, and, and notice the contrast in how the two men are treated. Look at the contrast there. Notice the emphasis on one sits, and one is told to stand over here. One is over there, and the other one is brought close. Like, come on, come with me, right? You kind of see the, the contrast that he says there. And essentially what they're doing is they're, they're trying to be near, they're trying to be related connected to the, the, the rich man. And so here's what partiality is. Let me give you a, a little bit of a definition. Partiality is this. Partiality is preferring those people who appear to have more to offer you. That's partiality. When you prefer someone because they appear to have something to offer you. And you don't even realize that that's what you're doing, but you're preferring people because they have something uh, to, to offer you. And so we maybe treat certain people with more attention with more kindness, with more uh, warmth. Maybe we're a little more interested in what they have to, to, to say. Maybe we're a little more drawn to them. Maybe when they speak, we actually are really attentive rather than just kind of saying, yep, 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 and kind of zoning out. But we're, we're, we're really kind of more um, 
into what they're saying and, and trying to be around them. Why? It's because they have something to offer us. Again, you might not realize you're doing it, but we do it. I do it. They have something to give me, and I'm going to get it out of them. I'm, I'm going I'm to receive it. And again, I, I told you we can't check out because we're all, all guilty here, and so let's, let's help you imagine this. Imagine you're at a party. You go into a party. You show up. Or let's even use James' illustration. Imagine you go into church, maybe even t- today, and there's a large number of people there that you could go talk to, you could go stand beside, you could interact with. Where do we tend to go when we walk into that, that room? Maybe you have an instance even this week, a class or a, uh, something you went to at work or an event or something. Where do we tend to go? We tend to go to the people or the person who can give me something. Maybe it's the person who can light me up. I just like them. They're just oh, so enjoyable to be around. The person who can I- encourage me. I want to go where the laughter is. That's funny. I like that. That's, that's good. The witty person. James's illustration, he, he's speaking to, to wealth as though these people are trying to get something out of the wealthy man, right? And go hang out with the wealthy man. Maybe he'll or maybe he'll give to our church, or maybe he'll help me with the debt that I'm in. Maybe just knowing him will kind of help me bump up in social status a little bit. And he gives us that example. For us, maybe it's seeking to acquire uh, social wealth. Like if I'm around them, they can give me status. If I'm near this person, that person will see me, and, and it kind of bumps us up uh, the, to the next step in the caste system. Maybe for us, it's we're seeking emotional wealth from that person. I mean, they just light me up, they make me smile, they make me laugh, and I need to get that out of them. Uh, maybe it's relational wealth for our single people out there. Maybe it's preferring the, the, the cute girl or guy versus the person who's not your type. Now, I completely understand. We're all going to have preferences, and we're all going to move towards one person. I chose Becky, my wife, over somebody else. I mean, that makes complete sense. And, and so don't get me wrong, even in the book of Ruth, we studied Ruth a, a couple years ago. In the book of Ruth, Ruth is called to put herself out there to Boaz, right? Just kind of put yourself out there, lay at his feet while he's at the, the threshing floor. And so obviously there's a time and a, and a place for pursuing friendship. And there's a time and a place for pursuing healthy relationship. But it's not the time or the place to do it when you're doing so to the oppression or to the uh, preferential treatment of, of one person to another, or the exclusion of one person over another, right? That's not the time and place to do it. So be very, very careful there. I think about Facebook, cultural phenomenon. We could go on forever. One of the most interesting articles I ever read was the Time Magazine, Man of the Year, Mark Zuckerberg, a few years back. It was crazy, just my mind, just un- unreal, just how that shaped things, and and we get invited to Facebook events all the time, don't we? And you have three options. You remember the options? You could say yes, you could say no, or you could say maybe. <laughs> and, and, and what is maybe all about? <laughs> maybe is I'll go unless there's something better that comes up, <laughs> right? Like I'll go to that unless there's another event or another party or another thing or another night that I can go to where... I can get more for me out of this than this particular event. And it drives me insane. And so we choose what to attend or what not to attend. We choose who to invite or who not to invite based on what can I get out of this relationship, this event, right? We, we, we do that all the time. Can I go and 
get a lot of laughter. Can I go, and if I'm there, then I might meet that person over there who would lead to this and this, and I could really get in with the crowd I wanted to be. And, and see, it's, it's a problem when it's to the exclusion of something else. So we need to think about these events, and you have two events side by side that you could go to. Do you go to this one that you could get a lot out of, or do you go to this one where you could give a lot? Right? It's really important to think through. And Christians, let's not be noncommittal about the things that we say yes to. Let's get over the maybe button. Now, if you chose maybe on something, I'm just, I'm just again, generalization. Don't be offended. But let's get over that. Let's say yes to something. I want to be there, and I want to give. Regardless of how great it is for me and what's in it for me, I want to give. Maybe there's somebody there that I can serve. Maybe if I could go have dinner at his house or his house, and he and I get along well, it's going to be awesome. Or I could go with him, and maybe I could give something to him. Maybe that's the route we need to go. Super Bowl, when it comes around, maybe that's the way you need to think. Halloween parties coming up this week, maybe that's the way you need to think. You need to think biblically, right? And essentially, what we do is we say, what's in it for me? And we're using people. And so we need to be very, very careful. Be very, very, very careful. And I understand that even when you walk into a place like this or another larger group or maybe even to, to work, just to the reverse, we've talked about what you go to, but what about what you don't go to or who you avoid? You ever avoid people? Like, okay, if I talk to that person, they're going to suck the life out of me. <laughs> if I talk to that person, they're going to talk my head off and I'm just going to be like stunned with a stun gun. I don't, right? And so we start to avoid people. Or and he's not the funniest person with him, my conversation's a little forced. It's kind of awkward. I'll just kind of ignore that. What you're saying is there's nothing in it for me. It might even cost me something, so I'll go, I'll go this way instead. Can I, can I take a moment to confess? I think it's important that I confess from time to time. I'm guilty of this a lot. In fact, uh, recently I caught myself. One thing I, I, I try to do, I encourage you guys to do, is to build a relationship with your neighbors. The Bible talks a lot about neighbors. It's important to love your neighbor as yourself. We're even going to see that in this passage. But I recently found myself, as I've been trying to get to know my neighbors and working hard to, 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 to love them and, and serve them, I, I caught myself. Um, see, there's this one guy in my neighborhood that's particularly just hard to talk to. He's just awkward. He's not a real good conversationalist. And you can tell he lights up when I get to talk to him, but he doesn't know what to say back. And so he's just like, yep, that's great. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, ask me something, right? I'm like, 20 questions here. And, and so I found myself the other day, you know, walking out the door to go to, go to work. And on my way out, I, I got my bag on. I mean, I'm ready. Coat, bag, I'm ready. I get to the doorknob, and I'm, I'm looking out the window at the same time he's out there. So I just paused for a few minutes on the doorknob. Just kind of sat there until he got in his car and he drove away. <laughs> you ever done this? I don't want to talk to the neighbor today. <laughs> and he drove away, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Like my four-year-old Luke would say, busted, right? <laughs> I was busted. I was convicted, right? Verse 5 says, have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? I made distinctions. And may we never be guilty of that. May we never be guilty of, 
of making distinctions. You never know what God's uh, going to do. See, if, if there was another neighbor out there, I probably would have gone right on out. I get to talk to him today. But this one's kind of awkward and kind of forced, and so I said, I'll just stand here for a minute and maybe tie my shoe or something. Maybe never be guilty of that. I think about Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul, this is the start of the church of Philippi. This chapter for us as a new church has been a chapter that we just try to model our ministry after. Acts chapter 16, remember the girl who's demon-possessed, and she's following Paul's ministry, and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, and it says that Paul gets straight up annoyed with her, right? He's annoyed with her. What does she become? He ministers to her, and she becomes what? She becomes a founding member of the church of Philippi. This woman that previously annoyed him. (laughs) And I pray that this church would be full of people who previously annoyed us, but we treated them the way the gospel would have us to, to treat them. And we become a church of people who have been transformed by the gospel. We become a people who really live these kinds of lives. Partiality uses people. Uses people. We give to those people like Jesus gives to people. We give to people who maybe give us nothing in return. So the gospel example is, what can I offer them, not what can they offer me? Aren't you glad that God didn't do that? Hmm, What can they offer me? Should I die for him? No, I'll die for her. So glad the Lord didn't do that. We're to be a gospel-centered people. We're going to struggle with this. We're going to constantly struggle with this because we're sinful. Being a Christian doesn't mean you're, you're over it all and you're just perfect now. We will constantly struggle with it, but we come back to the gospel. We see the world through the lens of the gospel. Here's the, the next truth about partiality. Partiality confuses us. Moving a little faster, the first one, partiality uses others. The second one, partiality confuses us. Look at verses 5 through 7. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? See, the rich people were were dragging the poor people into court because the poor people perhaps were asking the wealthy that they could borrow money and they couldn't pay him back, and the rich people are dragging them into to, to court, the rich people are persecuting uh, Christians as well, many of whom were, were lower-income people because of their receptivity to the gospel. He says, they're the ones who are, are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? They blaspheme the name of the, the Lord? You see what James is, is saying to these guys? Brutally honest brother of Jesus is saying, you are confused. You serious right now? is you're exalting the rich and you're oppressing the poor. Historically speaking, the rich and the powerful people are those who have brought the strongest persecution against the church. Historically speaking, those with power and wealth, and power that comes from wealth. Historically speaking, the rich and the powerful tend to be the people who are most prone to rejecting Jesus. Because I don't need him. I'm all set. I got everything I need, right? And yet, James is saying, you are preferring them over the poor, those who are apt to give their lives to Jesus. You're showing preferential 
treatment, partiality, favoritism. He says, you are confused. Why do we do this? Because they have something that we want. They can give us something. They can give us status. They maybe could get us out of debt. Maybe they could, uh, just relating with them, I, I could be seen by someone. And maybe just being with them, it fills me up and I can get some humor. Whatever it may be, wealthy and whatever. Money, wealthy in uh, social gifts, wealthy in uh, humor. Whatever it may be, you're preferring them. See, when we want something, we tend to do stupid things to get it, Right? We can do dumb things that just don't make any sense to get something. Can I give you a few examples? Sex. The culture is sex-crazed, right? And so married men will have sex with another woman and cheat on their spouse and not think about what that's going to do to their children and maybe even a few generations down so they can get something they want. They're not thinking straight. They're confused. When we want something, we'll do stupid stuff to get it, won't we? Do that with power. Do that with power. We'll say, man, I want this. I need it. I got to get there. Abandon our friends. You abandon the people who have been there for you. Ever done that? Somebody ever done that to you? Money. People do anything for money, right? They'll abandon their convictions for money. They'll step on people's toes for money. They'll elbow people off the ladder to climb up. And James says, are you confused? Yes, you are, con- you are confused. I think we can probably all think back to a, a, a time in our lives where somebody abandoned us for selfish reasons. Maybe some of you are deeply, deeply hurt by that. Maybe it was a, a parent, grandparent, close friend, spouse, somebody you dated. They bailed on you for selfish reasons, sex, power, money, social status, corporate success, whatever it is. People do it all the time. We do anything to get what we want. And it's, it's ugly. We get confused because we want something and we're going to get it. Let's not allow, church, let's not allow favoritism and partiality to confuse us. Let's keep saying, okay, this is the gospel. He loves all people. Maybe she or he can give me something, but I'm going to love both of them. I'm not going to exclude either of them. Now, let's think back to that definition I gave you guys of partiality for a second. I put word, one word in there uh, for a reason. This definition, preferring those people who appear. If you wrote that definition down, circle that word appear. Preferring those people who appear to have more to offer you. Here's what we're saying. They appear to, but maybe they actually don't have more to offer you. See, many times you'll find that it's the people who have nothing who can give you the most. If you've ever been on a missions trip to a third world country, you have learned this lesson very quickly, haven't you? People who appear to have nothing, and you leave so full. I went to give, and I came back loaded, just full. Blows my mind. Every time I've gone to Honduras, my wife and I, and Ashley's been as well with us, we go to this rural village in Honduras, and it blows my mind every time. I mean, just tiny little houses, some cases huts, and yet the hosts, the people who own the house, they don't have guest bedrooms, and so what they do is they start to roll out blankets in the living room or the, the central room, 
I'm like, all right, thanks. Appreciate that. And they say, oh, no, no, no. I'm sleeping there. You sleep on my bed. And so I leave learning a lot. I leave with some of my most powerful lessons on hospitality from people who maybe appear to have nothing to give me. They gave me a lot. Gave me a, a whole lot. It's amazing. And so sometimes it appears as though others have a lot to give you. Maybe they don't. And maybe chumming it up with them might actually lead you into some trouble. But if you'll be humble, what does the Lord do? He exalts the humble, doesn't he? Scripture says that all over the place. He exalts the humble. I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. Powerful verse. Write this down. Go read it. Meditate on it this week. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says this. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. It's an amazing verse, isn't it? Rich, funny, fashionable, social, elite. Those are the people who tend to get invited to the parties, don't they? Get invited to the events. Seldom do the poor get invited to those. We want to invite them to the gospel party, don't we? When they get invited to the gospel party, understandably, because they haven't been invited to all the other parties, when they get invited to the Jesus party, when God gets a hold of their hearts, their gratitude skyrockets, doesn't it? See, this is amazing. And they live these extraordinary lives as the gospel bears on their their lives and their heart. And they tend to be the most grateful people. They tend to be the people that turn around and do things that we're just, wow, that's amazing. Because they're grateful and they have something to compare it to. I was here, but now I'm here. It's amazing. We can learn a lot. I think back uh, to college. Uh, My wife and I used to uh, travel the East Coast um, through college, two to three weekends a month for me for all four years and for her three years because she hurried through so she could marry this dude right here. And so, um, but we used to travel together for two to three weeks a semester or a month, you know, all semester long in college. And we'd go to churches up and down the East Coast and uh, we would lead worship for churches and preach at churches. I'd do a lot of preaching at churches and youth ministries and things. And that conversation that I'd have several times with a youth pastor different youth pastors, I'd, I'd have a youth minister say something like this to me. I'd say, you know, Josh, if I could just reach the captain of the football team, I could influence that school. <laughs> you hear that? Or, hey, when, when somebody from your crew shares a personal testimony, you have anybody who's like an athlete? You have anybody that's just got like a really cool story? garbage, right? It's garbage. It's preferential treatment. What did Jesus do? He took a bunch of losers by the world standards and turned the world upside down with them, didn't he? So to say, if I could get a hold of just the captain of the football team, no, if I could take the biggest loser in that school, could light him on fire for Jesus and do amazing things. Amazing things. Partiality confuses us to not think straight, to not think like Jesus would think. Confuses us to think outside of the gospel realm. I'm fine with the mission strategy that I've heard a lot, especially in this city, of influencing the influential. I like that strategy. It makes sense to me. And so many ministries will target Harvard. 
right? Because chances are, I mean, you think about it, it always blows my mind when I walk on campus, that there are likely the next U.S. president on campus there. You think about it. Think about how many students go on you know, from the, the presidents that we have. How many were Harvard guys? It's crazy. And so I, I get that. Let's minister there and influence the influential, right? And to our Harvard students, we love you deeply. Um, but if we were to stand a Harvard student beside, say, a street person from Rosendale, we don't show preferential treatment to either of them. Because that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. He doesn't say, you're more competent. In fact, if you look in the scriptures, God uses some losers, doesn't he? He does. It's amazing. He uses the unlikely people. All right. Don't get confused. Third truth. Move it even faster. Partiality isn't excused by God. One, partiality uses others. Two, partiality confuses us. Three, partiality isn't excused by God. It's not. Let's read verses 8 through 11. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressions. Hey, James, tell me what you really think here. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Okay. Partiality is not excused by God. Verse 8, James points us to what he calls the royal law. True king, Jesus. This is his law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8 in the Old Testament. Repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 22, he's asked, what are the greatest, what's the greatest commandment? He gives them what they want. He says, love your, your, your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what James says here. It's repeated several times, on and on and on and on through the scriptures. It means it's important. And here, James contrasts this loving our neighbor to partiality. He says they're opposites. Partiality is not loving towards people. What he's saying here by saying, I'm talking partiality, but I'm talking to what Jesus says is the most important commandment, the commandment upon which the entire Bible hinges on? By, he's sinking those two. Partiality to those? He's saying, this is a big deal to God. Partiality is a big deal to God. It's as if he's reading our minds and starting to anticipate our thoughts. He's like, I know where you're going with this. I know where you're, you're, you're going. You're going to start to justify partiality. We start to think about, well, this is America. <laughs> and, you know, if I want to get to the top, I've got to do it somehow. God, I can't trust you to get me to the top. I can't trust you to exalt the humble. I've got to fight my way to the top. That's kind of how we start to think. And so we start to say, well, my workplace is an exception to this concept of partiality because I've got to favor some people, otherwise I'm not going to move forward. We start to, we start to justify things. Right? And he says, no, no exception. You can be a Christian at work. You should be. Or 
my neighbor is the exception. I mean, you don't know my neighbor. He exhausts me. He's a user. It's hard. No, no exceptions. He's anticipating where we're going with this. Well, you know, James, the poor in America, you know, they get a lot of government handouts, and it's just kind of, you know, like, I don't want to feed into that. No. He says, no. No partiality whatsoever. No partiality whatsoever. Right? Verse 9, he says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted. <laughs> He's stern. He's honest. You're convicted. You are guilty when you show partiality. And he goes on to, to tell us that, that you can't pick and choose between which of God's commands you choose, right? And so he, he, he brings up a couple and he says like, okay, say you're not guilty of adultery, but you commit murder. Well, you're guilty of the entire law. You're a lawbreaker, period, right? He uses some really stern ones, ones that we are like, oh, not me. He's, he's using this, these crazy big ones like adultery and murder on purpose. He's saying, yeah, we can, we can relate partiality to murder. Yeah, we can relate partiality to adultery. Really? Yes. Commit one law. You commit the whole thing. You're guilty, right? So do not justify partiality. Don't try to point to other areas of my life and say, well, I might have been partial here, but I do this, God, and I do this, and I go to church, and I help people, and I serve in this way, and I love you, and I read my Bible, and I pray, and I sing. It's not, you're guilty of everything. You show partiality. Partiality is not excused by God. Good news, but it can be forgiven. It can be forgiven. God will forgive you. And so some of us, we need to start rounding third base and saying, all right, am I guilty? Yeah, I'm guilty. (laughs) And so we need to be forgiven. We need to begin to confess that sin so we can start moving forward with gospel living everywhere, at work, their neighbors, people here, people who exhaust us, the challenging people. We need to be impartial because that's the gospel. Last one, appropriate way to end. Partiality abuses the gospel. Partiality uses others. Partiality confuses us. Partiality isn't excused by God. Partiality abuses the gospel. Look at the last two verses of this section. Verse 12. So, saying, therefore, speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying a person who has been shown mercy will, in turn, show mercy. That's what he's saying. You've been shown mercy by God. That's true. You received it. You're going to, in turn, show mercy. And he brings it back with this language of mercy, like a judge giving mercy to somebody. He brings it back to this legal, legal language at verse 4. If you want to look back to verse 4, he says this. He says, when you show partiality, have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? He's kind of using that legal language. Like, we're, we become judges when we get partial. We judge people. This person's better. They can give me more. I'll go with him, right? You crucify him, right? He says, you become judges. And he's saying here, you better give everybody mercy. Everybody mercy, no matter what, because you've been shown mercy, because you have been judged under the law of liberty, the law of freedom. God has freed you from Satan's sin and death, not because you've earned it, but because Jesus earned it. 
And so don't turn around and make other people earn your favor because you didn't earn God's favor. If you've been given mercy, you will show mercy. And if you don't, you're abusing what God has given to you. You're abusing the gospel. He's pretty stern. And so, church, we want to be a selfless people because Jesus was selfless. He gave up himself. He walked this earth. He didn't have to. The people mocking him all along the way, all those people who loved him and said, give me this, Lord, heal me, feed me. Love your teachings so profound. Turn around and say, crucify him or flee. They didn't give him much of anything. So we shouldn't turn around and say, give me, give me, give me. But we should say, like Christ, what can I give? What can I give? What can I give? And be a gospel-centered people. And keep living out these truths. And as we struggle with partiality, because it's going to come your way, you get that gut check. It's the Holy Spirit. You're like, oh, I really want to go to this. But I already talked to this person about hanging out with them. Oh, man, it's going to be hard. Or, man, who could I invite over? There'd be some fun people to hang out with this week. Well, I never even talked to that. Maybe I should invite him over. You get this gut check, and you can have the opportunity to really live out the gospel towards other people as it's been done to us. In case you didn't know this, we're a new church. <laughs> we're in a basement. <laughs> we're a new church. And uh, that's just the truth. And so we're trying to build something here trying to build a church, trying to build a church that would honor the Lord and reflect the gospel to our, our, our city. And you have the opportunity to join us in building a church that would be a counterculture, be different from what everybody else is used to. I'm not trying to be different for different sake. I'm trying to be different because we want to be like Christ so we can build a counterculture, a gospel culture, that the world out there is about winning and earning and, and climbing and, and performing and getting to the top of the ladder. But Jesus is about, I'll climb down the ladder. It's complete countercultural. It's complete reverse of thinking. And so what we have the opportunity to do here, you have the opportunity to join us in building this kind of counterculture. You can build a place of rest from the toil of climbing that people face every day. That we can build a place where people can come and be who they are and not have to earn our favor. That we will love them the second they walk in the door. We will love them the second they walk out of their door and go to their car. And we don't want to talk to them. I'm saying I'm guilty. We can love them. We can create a place of rest. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. He's loved us regardless of who we are. We can build that. People can come and be a part of this. They can be loved. They can come in and just ah, breath of fresh air. Breath of, of fresh air to people. We can give that to them. That's the gospel. It's about giving the way the Lord has given to us. One more thing I want to tell you is this. Partiality 
is, is, is looking at people to get what I don't have. That's partiality. The gospel is looking at people to give what they don't have. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to build. We want to be a Jesus people, gospel people. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these challenges. Father, I pray that this would be us. Help us in these things. I think we're all guilty. We're all convicted of the entire law. Thank you that you offer forgiveness. And then you offer us a way to live in your power. Help us in these things, Lord. May Christians rise up and be what you want us to be. Like Jesus. In our hearts, our flesh, will wrestle against that. But may we live not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. And God, I pray for those in this room this morning who have never trusted in Jesus. Lord, help them. Bring them to that place of trust that they would see that Jesus is good, that Jesus loves me regardless of my failures, regardless of the things that I hate about myself. Jesus loves me and he died for me. And he offers me life and newness and a relationship. May they trust in that. And commit them to you, Father. Thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.